Welcome to the Stott Legacy. He is within us. He shares in the pain and identifies him. We must not ask God to change his timetable because we're getting a little bit impatient. Or think of the beginning of the first letter of Peter when he says that we were chosen by God the Father. It is 2021 and this marks the centenary of the birth of John Stott in central London. He holds a unique place in 20th century church history, not just because of his impact on the British church, but because of his impact on the global church. So throughout the year, we will meet a broad range of people from across the world, both women and men who knew him and worked closely with him, as well as those who never met him, but were nevertheless shaped by his preaching and writing. My name is Mark Mennell, and I hope you will join me as we explore inspiration, challenges, and insights from the life of Uncle John. In this episode, we meet Ruth Padilla divorced, and it was such a delight to spend time with her for the podcast, and I'm especially grateful because it came just weeks after the sad passing of her father in April this year. And it was, of course, in part about him that I wanted to chat, because her father was the great Ecuadorian missiologist and theologian, René Padilla. René first met John Stott in the early 60s when he was studying in Manchester for a PhD under F.F. Bruce. And their paths crossed at various points because René was involved in the IFES work all over Latin America. But their friendship was cemented during John's travels in the region in the early 70s. It is not an overstatement to suggest that John's friendship with René as well as with other majority world leaders like Samuel Escobar from Peru and Festo Kavendari from Uganda that would change the global church irrevocably. But on those Latin American trips, John would preach, René would translate, and then the two would go off birdwatching together. So inevitably, I asked Ruth whether her father was interested in birdwatching before he met John. He was not, and I <laughs> suspect um, John. I mean, we have a, one of my favorite photographs is one taken by a friend that shows John laying in the tall grass with his binoculars, you know, waiting for the moment for this bird to fly off or something, and my dad sitting on a stool reading a book <laughs> in the same photograph. So I'm afraid he didn't he didn't convert my dad, but he did. Um, I asked my dad about this also. Um, he did influence his awareness of just the integrity of creation and the right. call to care for it and to learn from it and such. So he did inspire and influence my dad's perspective, even though he didn't get into the bird watching as much as John did. Well, it would be hard for that not to rub off, I would have thought. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, I, I know of people, I think on every continent who um, – would go with him on bird watching trips, but stay in the car reading the paper or a book or something like that. <laughs> I think that was a fairly common scenario. Um, but uh, um, so, what are your earliest memories of him then? Um, so I think that preaching seminar was one of the first, and then in my in my young adult years, when I was involved with the Christian student movement, um, IFES, uh, right. he. 
he um we had the incredible privilege of having him with us for i believe it was even two weeks of bible exposition in one of our um, intensive training retreats and um he he taught um he taught out of the the psalms and the beatitudes and samuel escobar translated for him and um it was just a wonderful time because he he lived with us in this retreat center for for those two weeks and um and uh, so we would have chats outside of the the formal meeting times and because i was bilingual Again, I had the privilege of being able to even mediate, help translate in the conversations with other people and just to see his pastoral heart, Mm. his concern for people, for real people in real places and um, his incredibly disciplined memory about those people. Um, He would he would ask after people's families after he had heard their stories and such. Um, So that was amazing. And then as time went by, I guess I saw him once in London, and then when I did my master's program at Wheaton College, um, I had tea with him when he visited the college, and um, so there was a, um, it wasn't just the relationship with my parents or mm-hmm. my dad, but um, he built, he, he chose to to build a relationship even with us as younger people, and um and then when my late husband uh, died, he wrote me a wonderfully mm. um, encouraging letter. And I was just so honored to think he would take the time to uh, write a handwritten, personal, long letter um, mm. to encourage me in the midst of, of my loss. Yes. Um, so, so quite a privilege to have that accompaniment through time. Um, but of course, the more significant relationship was with my with my parents, mm. um, with both of them. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, so let's think about um, y- your father and people like Samuel and uh, other people around the build up to Lausanne. I mean, I think <laughs> it was 1974 that um, people in particularly in the West, but actually in the global church suddenly um, sort of sat up and noticed that there were these firebrand mm-hmm. voices calling the church to be more well integral mission was a key element of this so do you remember the build up to to Lausanne and and what they were talking about before uh they went mm-hmm. so i think the fact that john's visit to latin america um in the early 70s before the Lausanne uh, Congress, they exposed him not just to uh, these young theologians, but also to the realities um, within which they were honing their theological perspective. Um, dictatorships. I mean, most, nearly all the countries in Latin America were under dictatorships then, weren't they? There were, yes, many, many dictatorships, um, military regimes, revolutionary fervor in the universities, um, you know, and he had, he was close to the work of IFES um, Mm. as they were. They were, they were both uh, staff workers with IFES at, at that time. And so they were having to grapple with 
with the issues of the context and, and say, does, does the gospel have any relevance in relation to the real issues that our people are experiencing to the injustice and the oppression and the poverty and, and, uh, and all of this? Um, in what way is the good news good news in this reality? And so um, I think he understood as he engaged with these contexts, he understood why they were bringing up yes. these issues as integral to the gospel and why they're just unease with anything that would just have a blind eye towards those things. And presumably that came out of some negative experiences, particularly of Westerners coming in as outside speakers and preaching, in quotes, the pure gospel or whatever it might be. Exactly. Exactly. Just the, the narrow perspective of, and, and what had happened is in um, 69, um, the Billy Graham Association um, had uh, organized a conference in Bolivia, in Cochabamba. It was part of the sequence of uh, conferences um, for world evangelism mm -hmm. out of the Billy Graham Association. And they had held that in Cochabamba, Bolivia, um, really as um, somewhat of a counter to the cons to the more social concerns that ah, were... So there was a clear agenda for that. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and so Samuel Escobar's paper in 69 um, was very much about the social responsibility of the church and a call to that. And, and um, so, so things were stirring and beginning to coalesce and John would have been abreast mm. of these processes so that when they came up with their proposals in uh, 74, it was not a surprise to him. He would have known um, right. that they were in this, in this and his role there in kind of vouching for their evangelical credentials was crucial. Because I would imagine there were quite a lot of, well, certainly uneasy people, if not quite hostile people to them being on the platform. Absolutely. Absolutely. There was a lot of debate about them even being there, but they, I guess John was probably part of, of, of why they did get on the platform. And there also was at least um, lip service to wanting to hear younger people from around the world and having a global representation. And so they took the risk. <laughs> and took them at their word and said, okay, if that's what you, you're open to. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> do, do you remember remember the build up to it? What I remember is um, just, I mean, my dad traveled quite a bit at that time in life. And I wasn't always aware as a, right. as a young child of all the details of where he was or what he was doing. But I do remember, um, I mean, we, my mom usually uh, opened up a big atlas we had and showed us where he was on different mm -hmm. trips. And uh, but I particularly do remember um, when he was at Lausanne, my mother telling us, you know, today, Papi is going to be presenting, going to be talking in front of a lot of people. And many of them are not going to appreciate what he has to say. So let's pray for him. Mm. And so I do remember that. Um, and it just stuck as something. This was something rather 
special for her to mention specifically that day and 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 that talk did it worry you no it didn't worry me i no i think my mother had a lot to do with us not worrying mm. but um but actually i felt kind of proud mm. here's my dad going to stand up in front of a lot of people and say things that he believes even if they don't like him what do you think the particular insights or or angles that he brought to it as opposed to some of the other speakers i mean did he have particular concerns that um probably wouldn't have been part of lausanne if he hadn't spoken yes yes one was back again to uh 69 and some of the agenda brought to latin america by uh so-called evangelicals from North America particularly um that were emphasizing for example the homogeneous unit in church mm-hmm. growth um saying you know if you get people together that are of the same kind don't threaten them with anybody that's different just stick with if you're uh, white people keep white people if you're black keep them black if they're poor keep them together if they're you know don't mix them because that's a challenge So one of his challenges was in the name of mission strategy and effectiveness and numbers mm. you are compromising an essential dimension of the gospel because the gospel is about breaking those barriers about mm. transcending those differences about reconciliation and so here you are um imposing your culturally pragmatic mode onto mm. mission without a a theological consideration and so he objected to culture christianity is yes. what he called it um just this kind of blind assimilation of cultural values with gospel and putting that into the mission endeavor and and the other related to it was um the gospel has to confront these these culture pieces mm. that also kind of uh disintegrate uh disaggregate the ingredients of the gospel the gospel has is a whole and it has to do with all dimensions of life and the lordship of Christ is over all dimensions of life and so um that's that's where in a way that was the incipient what later came mm. to be known as integral mission i can't but hear the word integrity except in Uncle John's accent that it it became one of those words that was just right at the heart of everything he stood for mm-hmm. but I guess that was true mm-hmm. of your father as well. Yes, integrity also in to me one of the most significant gifts or legacies of my parents uh is the integrity of living what they said embodying the values they were proposing um as the vision of god's reign and god's justice in the world i mean just thinking about those challenges from 74 and 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 before there's been so many disasters and and sort of car crashes in in church in the last 50 years or so where that homogeneous unit thing has not been challenged and the legacy of that whole approach has just been devastating um and people were not listening they didn't listen to him then yeah i i just recently reread his talk um as you know as you know he he passed just a um 
mm. two and a half months ago. And um, in just remembering him uh, with Infinite, the International Fellowship of Mission for Mission and Transformation, which is one of his movements he founded. Um, I reread his talk and presentation at Lausanne. That's you can download that on the Lausanne webpage, can't you? Yes, yes, yes. I think we'll put a link to that. I was just shocked about how current it was mm. because um, so that was something to lament. I yes. mean, not that his one talk would revolutionize the world, yeah. but but he, but it wasn't just him, Samuel and others, and then Infinite grew out of that and the conversation conversation has been taking place and the voices have been speaking, but there just seems to be such an impervious block in a way of, of, um, of a very uh, reduced understanding of, of what it is to be the church, to be God's people and God's world. Um, so it was actually kind of sad. The book I want to talk about briefly is John Stott's 2002 book, Calling Christian Leaders, Rediscovering Radical Servant Ministry. Now, radical was one of those words that Uncle John loved to use. And it's no accident that it's there in the title of his very last book of all, The The Radical Disciple, that came out in 2010, just uh, months before he died. But it's entirely fitting for this book, too, that it's there in the title, because this is essentially his sermons on 1 Corinthians 1 to 4. And he describes in the preface how those chapters represented a profound fascination and challenge for him in his own ministry. And he first preached them outside All Souls at the Keswick Convention of 1962. And he returned to them repeatedly, coming to use uh, passages for conferences, for training seminars, for retreats with people in ministry all over the world over the next 40 years. In countries including, rather fittingly, in the light of the conversation we're having with Ruth, uh, in Argentina and Costa Rica. The book uh, divides into five key leadership themes that sort of echo the, the structure of these chapters in Paul's epistle. But all the time, Paul's letter not only inspires Stott's wisdom, but clearly shapes everything he writes. And the importance of these Corinthian chapters has not faded. In fact, in the light of recent scandals and some of the horrors of abusive leadership within the church, these chapters have hardly been more vital. But listen to what Stott says at the end of his second theme. The Christian leaders needed in the world and the church today are those who've seen the Lamb on the throne and are determined to follow him wherever he goes. They know that God's power will be exhibited, not in displays of power, but in their weakness. But I want to close with the final paragraphs of the whole book, because the challenge is clear and has really resonated with me. And the leaders who fail to meet this challenge are profoundly exposed and all the more visible and obvious. So these are the last paragraphs of the book. We have now considered in 1 Corinthians 4, four models of ministry which Paul paints of his own apostolic ministry and which are also applicable to Christian leaders today, even though they are not apostles. This is how you should regard us, Paul writes. We are underlings of Christ, stewards of revelation, the scum of the earth and the fathers of the church family. Further, the common denominator, denominator of all four is humility. Humility before Christ, whose subordinates we are. 
Humility before scripture, of which we are stewards. Humility before the world, whose opposition we are bound to encounter. And humility before the congregation, whose members we are to love and serve. My prayer as we come to the end of this study is that Christian leaders who peruse these pages may be characterised above all else by what the Apostle Paul called the meekness and gentleness of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 1. Well, how we need to echo the words of John's prayer for ourselves, for God's church, for his people across the world. It is always painful to have one's own shortcomings exposed, but it is a necessary process for maturity. And it's especially important that we listen to our friends. Well, Ruth is particularly well-placed to understand the deep-rooted challenges and problems in the Western Church because she is the daughter of an Ecuadorian father and an American mother, and she's lived in Latin America most of her life. So I asked whether there were other issues and problems as significant as Western pragmatism that need to be examined. I think, I think the, the individualism of Western North Atlantic culture um, that is just, it's so much about just me, myself and, and I, and um, it filters then our, the understanding of what it means to be the body of Christ, to be the church, um, to what extent um, we owe ourselves to others and we have to learn to, and, and our, in our expression of the gospel, the most core means is by being the people of God, living um, as in such a way that we demonstrate what God's purposes are. But if you just, each one is in their own little corner vying for their own personal interest or the person interests of their little family or their little, you know, little corner, uh, then, then there's, there's not that coming together in a way that illustrates, um, what God intends for humanity. That's a that's a really helpful point. I, the fact that you uh, and your husband are living in a in community, aren't you? So that that yes. is something that the world just finds crazy. They don't get that at all. Yes, yes. yes. I mean, do you it find no that people react strongly to it? Yes, there definitely there definitely is uh, is a what <laughs> what are you doing? Why would you do that? Just describe the community that you're in to us. Yes. So Casa Adobe, Adobe House, is our community. And we live with, um, at this point, we are four families and a few single people. Um, we identify as, um, I mean, the name Adobe, you know, they're blocks, um, mm -hmm. mud blocks. They're very fragile. And we recognize our own fragility, our own brokenness actually many of us have gone through really tough things in life um mm. trauma um we have two of the families are refugee families um because of the assassination of family members mm. uh, in the midst of vi gang violence or political violence um and uh but we live together we have a, a common um purse for our regular expenses. We um, see our vocation as also learning to be good neighbors with our human neighbors, but also with the rest of creation. So we have a very, a pretty large um, 
garden were very uh, ecologically conscious. So making blocks with our plastic and trying mm-hmm. to recycle as much as we can and composting and also working in the neighborhood to encourage our neighbors to compost. And so mm-hmm. just really learning to live um, somewhat more simply, much more communally. We recognize this way we have a much less, uh, much smaller uh, carbon footprint that allows us then to just, and it frees up funds to for people to do things in the neighborhood without the need to everybody be getting a substantial income because we can fund each other's initiatives um so it's it's a learning process we know it's an experiment we know it we never say we've arrived and we have the formula we're just growing learning so how long have you been living in this present form then Probably about nine years. Wow. Okay. In, in, mm-hmm. mm. I mean, not everybody has been here that long. There have sure. been different, and there have been some young people that have come. We also see this as an opportunity to expose younger people to an alternative way of living. Um, and so we have young volunteers that come for a year and then move on to their next phase, but they take some of the provocation along with them. We see ourselves as provoking imagination imagination in a way mm. of uh, what it might be like to not just go to church, but to live church uh, from Monday to Sunday. Brilliant. And that would be very much the Lausanne vision. Yes, yes. An integrated life. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Have you seen the way it's rippled out in, in the local community? I mean, Yes, yes, very much. I mean, people. They thought you were mad to begin with, I guess. Yes, exactly. Because several of us are foreigners. We're not Costa Rican. Um, we actually have a minority of Costa Ricans where I'm from Argentina. My husband's from the U.S. One of the refugee families is from El Salvador. Another one's from Venezuela. And so they just um, ca- cab drivers when they pick us up from the airport or something, they'll say, well, I didn't know there was a hotel here. <laughs> <laughs> and the neighbors thought this was a strange strange foreigners house but slowly as we engaged with the neighborhood and shared our vision and just received the old people from the neighborhood for coffee and the um, children for um, after school support with English or um, tutoring and with the uh, women accompanying them in their starting up their own little urban gardens Mm. and such they now they know us and they're like very grateful that we're Mm. we see ourselves just as catalysts for the neighborhood being uh people being building community in some way beyond ourselves that the neighbors might really just grow in their sense of uh, being there, supporting one another, growing together, um, sharing in, in, in different endeavors. When people say you're, a, you're part of an intentional uh, Christian community, you say, yes, there's intention, but it's also very accidental. I mean, <laughs> things just kind of evolve, you know, there's a kind of organic mm. mode to it. Um, and we just are seeking to be faithful to what God calls us at different stages um, and according to the gifting of the people involved in the community. I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? Just thinking about the word intentional, I guess sometimes it can be just another form of pragmatism 
that you mm-hmm. have an agenda mm-hmm. of where you want this to go yes. and it, yes. you fall flat yes. on your face. Yes, yes, yes. So there's that, that discernment of just following day by day. Ruth mentioned Infamit, and this stands for the International Fellowship of Mission as Transformation. I've attended one or two of their online events myself as part of the Stott Bediaco Forum, which Ruth goes on to describe. Infamit began when leaders from the Global South, like Kwame Bediaco, echoed concerns brought by René Padilla and others after the Lausanne Congress, since they had felt sidelined by those from Western countries particularly. So in 1974, they drafted a Declaration of Radical Discipleship, signed by fellow Global South leaders, and which John Stott himself endorsed. From that, a movement grew to provide Uh, the kind of freedom and space for people to explore what the gospel looks like in various different contexts that they're living in. A series of gatherings followed, and they even founded the Oxford Centre for Mission Studies, OCMS, with the aim of giving other leaders opportunities to gain first world recognised credentials without having to leave their communities and cultural contexts. Infamit later lost its steam somewhat, but in the mid-2000s, The movement was rejuvenated when Ruth and others were brought onto the OCMS board to see what they could do. And I got to meet Kwame Bediako. Right. And Kwame said, Ruth, you, your generation, has to reactivate Infamit. And as we did, we took on the challenge um, with peers, friends from other regions uh, of the globe, kind of the the second generation of those first of those pioneering leaders um, we recognized that today we needn't uh, put in opposition the first world and the two-thirds world or the majority minority and all of this right. but that we actually needed to partner in mission uh, with a strong um, favoring the voices of the rest of the world, but keeping them in dialogue. And we felt John had had uh, exemplified that humility to partner, to truly partner, to not come as the British uh, educated man that had everything to say to others, but actually to listen, to learn alongside to partner, truly partner. Um, So that's why we chose the name um, and all that that meant was because Mm. of uh, the spirit with which John had engaged with us as uh, global um, brothers and sisters and um, Kwame's call to get this going again. Um, Mm. And so the Stop Bediaco Forum is um is is our core really our core program uh we are a network we're a fellowship we have um infinite circles that gather for prayer and encouragement but our more public um visible program is the stop Bediaco forum of issues and mission we just finished up a couple months ago on um uh, peace building and conflict transformation through a lens of post-colonial and indigenous mm. Christianity. So that was the one I, I went to. Wonderful. I'm glad you attended. Mm, I know it was, it was a really helpful and inspiring time. I mean, it's interesting that John, as you say, exemplified that, but on paper, looking at him and his background, 
you might have expected the archetypal paternalistic colonial mindset. Absolutely. So what do you think was it about him? What, what seemed to subvert all that? I, I can't attribute it to anybody but the Holy Spirit <laughs> giving him that humility, that willingness to learn, that openness. Perhaps his, his, the, the same, he applied the same sensitivity he did to watching birds, mm. to that attentiveness, that, oh. that keying in to what's there, what's really happening. Mm. Um, and, and that the posture with which he engaged with people around the world in my experience. Um, and so that, that posture of, of humility, of willingness to. Cause it was genuine, wasn't it? Learn. He wasn't put on or anything. No, it was absolutely genuine. It was, it was, yes. And, and of course he, there was this joke. He and my, my dad would say to him, John, how do you, how come you have written so many books and John would say, well, Renee, I write books. You have five children. <laughs> <laughs> Being single and then with the support of his faithful accompany yes. com companion, he was able to just give himself to others, mm -hmm. to many others, rather than just to, to a, um, one nuclear family. Yes. But you have this sense with him that if he was talking to you, um, that was the most important thing of the moment. He wasn't sort of looking over your shoulder for someone more interesting. <laughs> true, true, true. I wonder if there were particular aspects of his writing or, or teaching that particularly helped you in your discipleship and, and as your theological career continued. I just kind of kept by my bedside for quite a while, having studied it with the young people in our church was the 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 Sermon of the Mount um, from the Bible Speaks Today series. I don't know what the English title was in the original, but in Spanish it was Christian Counterculture. Yes, that's, um, that was the, the English title. too. Oh, okay. Um, it was very, very shaping of our understanding as um, of what it really meant to follow Jesus in the world and what it, what, what, um, a difference it it had to make in all our in all our just in the way we lived um so that one became very very formative as did his teaching in these opportunities i had to hear him teaching um both in the student movement in latin america and then in the broader um IFES globally. Um, but I would say if I had to mention one initially, and then later, obviously, the Cross of Christ and other his other writings. Um, uh, but but I think kind of very much shaping at an age when I was beginning to 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 consolidate um, yes. kind of those grounding um, commitments uh, would be Christian counterculture. And that's interesting, because I, I I think I read that when at Lausanne and subsequently in the movement calling people to a simple lifestyle, that did raise some controversy in North America particularly. People just didn't want to go there at all. But here it's it's in black and white on the page in, in Matthew. 
And then they had that consultation on simple lifestyle from from Lausanne. Um, and really, that's something I think my my parents and John shared and encouraged in one another was that simple lifestyle. So my and John actually helped my parents purchase a small, very modest little home in um next to what then became the Cairo Center. Um, my parents, whenever they had a margin of means, they used it to build houses for other people. So, but that little house was called Uncle John's house. Um, Is that in Buenos Yes, yes, mm. yes. In uh, in gratitude to his support. Mm. My dad was uh, t- told me often about how when he visited John in London, um, John in, or when my dad was in London, John insisted that he lodge with him. Mm. And um, but John didn't have a huge place. No, he didn't have <laughs> a guest room. Actually, no. So he would sleep. He would give my, his bed to my dad, mm. and he would go sleep on the couch. Um, and my dad was just no, I can't do this to him. He's an older man. He's older than my dad was. Um, but he said no, I won't have it any other way. Yeah. This has been fascinating. I'd love to go on all day, but um, you have a busy life, no doubt, and I probably got one or two things to do. But as we wrap it up, I wonder um, how you might sum up your abiding memory or the impact of Uncle John and and. And maybe in relation to to your parents as well, how how that fitted all together, but what your abiding memory and appreciation would be. I think, um, you know, growing up in Argentina, there's quite a bit of prejudice built up and there's a stereotype. There's a stereotype about Brits being stiff, being cold, being... um, having a an air of superiority um and having had that empire stretched around the world and all of this and so there's a stereotype um and a prejudiced and inappropriate stereotype as all stereotypes are but there was a grain of truth about it <laughs> there's there's some there's some yes there's some grounding to yes. those uh stereotypes being built up but when i think of john he's one that helped me massively break those stereotypes um by just being humble by his integrity in his life, by his um, love, authentic respect for people, and his love for God's word and the grounding in it and inspiring that in the life of others. Um, And his very peace-granting presence in his very proper way, <laughs> still very British, um, and always with his suit and very mm-hmm. formal, but so um, so loving, um, mm. and so just to see God's mark on his life and his willingness to uh, let that shine through, and then his his incredible commitment to generosity um through all his royalties and creating langham and 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 nourishing generations and generations of bible expositors and writers and and scholars and um and 
just and allowing literature to flourish this this just giving away um and so i know also that friendship with my family was so um affirming and encouraging really crucial in in my dad's career um in the recognition of the work of latin americans and their contribution to the global church um it's hard to imagine um how that could have flourished as it did if it without john in the mix um so just just much gratitude for for that openness and humility that allowed him to be a bridge that is a just astonishing legacy isn't it i mean Mm. Uh, certainly in our lifetimes there hasn't been anybody else quite with that sort of mm. reaching out and holding hands with people around the world i think ifds as a movement has was a fantastic um yes channel platform to make that happen because it naturally connected people from around the world in a very horizontal yes, manner yes true well that maybe is a talk for another day um the sort of global impact of ifes um but ruth thank you so much for your time this has just been a, a real pleasure for me um and uh, i know that people will really appreciate some of the things you've been sharing so thank you very much indeed Perhaps we can gear the prayer points this time round to month-specific needs, depending on where people are. For those of us in the Northern Hemisphere, we're now very much in the summer months and the long vacation. But of course, wherever we are, the challenges of the COVID pandemic have by no means disappeared. So as we consider the worldwide Langham community of Langham scholars, Langham literature and Langham preaching, please pray for those in the global north to find the necessary space for some rest and recuperation from their labours. And for those in the global south, pray for perseverance and sustenance, especially if they face challenges specific to the winter months. And for us all, please pray for ongoing protection from COVID-19 and its variants. You've been listening to The Stop Legacy with me, Mark Mennell. Thank you very much for listening. In particular, I want to thank Vic Marseille, my colleague uh, who works with Langham Partnership UK and Ireland. She has been slogging away in the background, working very hard, putting all the ingredients to these episodes together, editing and polishing and producing a first-class job. If you want to find out more about uh, Langham Partnership, you can go to langham.org, that is L-A-N-G-H-A-M.org. Also, if you want to find out more about John Stott himself and anything that's happening for this centenary year, then go to the website johnstott, all one word, .org. And on that site, you'll find a blog for this podcast with links and photographs for each episode. That's johnstott.org forward slash podcast. Until next time, goodbye.